You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of the Village Church. So, so Calvin, and I mentioned this in the book, right? Calvin says you really can't know God unless you know yourself. And by that, he, he doesn't mean like you've got to discover who you really are and then you can know God. Totally doesn't mean that. What he means is you have to see yourself rightly. And then when you see your sin, you're like, oh, I need Jesus. Um, we don't really have to look at ourselves today. This is Adam Griffin, and I'm here with my co-host, the Adam Hawkins. Today, we're in the studio with author, scholar, editor-in-chief, Presbyterian brother, Alan Noble, about being a disruptive witness in our distracted and secular world. Alan, we're so excited to have you with us today. Alan Noble is an assistant professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University. He received his PhD from Baylor in 2013. He's written on faith, culture, politics, publications like Christianity Today, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, and he's the co-founder and editor-in-chief at Christ and Pop Culture. He and his family are members of Shawnee Presbyterian Church in Oklahoma City. Alan, so glad to have you with us this morning. We're going to start by trying to get to know you a little bit. We are going to talk about the ideas from your new book, Disruptive Witness, but first, let's just do a, a lightning round of getting to know Alan Noble. Sound good? Is it, you okay for that? Do I have a choice? No, sir. Alan, as a native Californian... <laughs> Is there anything good, anything you like about living in Oklahoma? What are the redeeming factors of that state? Yeah, I mean, it's not California. Um, (laughs) Less coast? California, it was interesting. So when when I moved to Waco to go to Baylor, Uh um, I noticed that people would look at me in the eye when I walked past them on the sidewalk, and I was like, are you going to fight me? What are you, <laughs> what are you doing? Because in California, you don't look at people yeah, in the really, eye. Yeah. Like it's, yeah, it's a threat. <laughs> and then checkers, like I'd be, you know, buying groceries and somebody would, you know, how, how, how are you today? And I'm like, excuse me? Do <laughs> I know business? you? How dare Why? you? Yeah. And after a while, I was like, I think I would like to raise my kids in a place where people are at least uh, formally friendly, even if they're, yeah. you know, not entirely sincere, at least they're not <laughs> constantly threatening you. So, uh, and then, and Oklahoma's the same, you know. Um, so, I, you know, I like, I like that. Okay, here's a real softball question for a man like yourself. So, yeah. right now, tell us, what what are you watching? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Name one of um, each of those. Okay, so my wife and I just finished season two of The Good Place. Oh, which was that good? surprisingly good. Oh, okay. That's Kristen Bell. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a a, a comedy, but um, it's almost more interesting as is like sci-fi or something like the plot twist. Oh okay. wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was good, and it it is seriously funny at times. And so, um, what was that? What, what am I watching? What am I what are you reading? reading? Uh, so the semester started. So basically, I don't read anything. I am reading, uh, <laughs> except for class. Yeah, I'm right, like, yeah. I'm reading. So You're I read inundated with things you have to. The Aeneid. So by Virgil, <laughs> awesome. yeah. obviously, uh, New York Times bestseller. Um, I'm actually reading Patrick Deneen's Why Liberalism Failed, mm. which so far is uh, fantastic and um, eye-opening. So yeah, there's that. Uh, from music. Um, uh, lately it's been the Smashing Pumpkins really? yeah so <clears throat> they released all these uh, what were bootlegs of like all their demos and things from um, 
uh, Melancholy and Infinite, Infinite Sadness. Sadness. Yeah. yeah, and those are really, really good. And yeah, so I'm like, it's like 1971 and uh, or what's the is that? Did I get the year wrong? 1979. 1979. Yeah, definitely. Got it wrong. <laughs> Embarrassing. Yeah. Sorry. yeah. So um, that's the Christian version. <laughs> is that right? They re-released <laughs> yeah. re- it. <laughs> well, it's just assembling like, pumpkins. Yeah, assembling pumpkins. <laughs> they have a Christian. Yeah, Perfect. a Christian cover band. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, share with us what's one thing if somebody's read you, read what you've written, knows a little bit about you. What's something they wouldn't know about you that would be important in getting to know Alan Noble? I'm very homeschooled. Very homeschooled? Yeah, that's what I said. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, all my life, right? So some people are like kind of homeschooled. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, like yeah. They, they cheated. Like, yeah, they got like preschool. Like I have uh-huh. a friend who went to kindergarten, and I don't, I don't count him as a real <laughs> homeschool. He's not a, what, what I call a hundred percenter. So. Um, <laughs> But I am, and we had goats, uh, and I feel like that's that's goats the is the measure line. line. You know that, and no um, state school, government okay. school, all the way through um, till Baylor. Uh, no, I went to community college. Okay, so I basically went to high school. Okay, that's <laughs> <awesome>. <laughs> like, California was basically high school. Yeah. And are you uh, you a big sports fan, basketball fan, basketball fan? Okay, are you a Thunder fan? Is that your team? Yeah. Okay. Do you think yeah. they have a chance this, this year of winning the championship? Yeah. So, I mean, statistically speaking, a chance means, I mean, there's a possibility. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> um, look, uh, Curry gets injured. Uh, LeBron is working with this new team. Um, yeah. Everything could fall into place. Absolutely. This could Absolutely. Be your year again. Anything could happen. Yeah. Uh, it is not very likely. I love the way Oklahoma rallies around the Thunder. I think that's a, it's a, since they've got the team, it's just beautiful to see from, you know, little Dallas down here watching a state rally around a team. I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. But no, you don't root for any California teams. Uh, so I got into basketball after I started at Baylor. Okay. Uh, we didn't, I didn't watch any sports at all growing up in California. I was very homeschooled. I don't yeah, know I, I think that. you mentioned it. Yeah, so <laughs> so we didn't watch anything, really. So goat-related sports, maybe? <laughs> That's right, yeah. 4-H was like the only H. That would do it. <laughs> That's right. So, um, yeah, so because of that, I, I got into sports after I left California, so I didn't feel any natural affinity with the Lakers, so... Man, thank you so much for putting up with us, asking you some get-to-know-you questions, because I really do want to get to the meat of our conversation. Uh, I just finished your book this week, Disruptive Witness, and I was really challenged by it and really inspired by it, too. I I think it's a great read. I I didn't know what to expect when I first got it, uh, but I was, I mean, seriously challenged by it, thinking about starting a church and leading worship in that church and then just being a part of the American culture. Several things jumped out at me, but you talk about two things we're up against specifically as the church in this cultural movement, technology and secularism come up again and again in mm-hmm. your book. And uh, particularly in the first couple of chapters, kind of lay a foundation for that and then talk about the ramifications for it as the church, but also as individuals. What do you believe, what are the primary challenges when we talk about technology? And uh, you, you say it so eloquently in your book, but can you share with us for somebody who hasn't read it, what are the challenges that technology poses to our culture and to the church? There are, there are a lot. But, but one of the challenges, I think, particularly for the church, is that it, uh, our, our technology increasingly demands more of our time and attention, right? Um, in fact, our technology is designed to, uh, as much as possible, steal our attention. It, yeah. it, it's one of the most important uh, resources that we have right now. And uh, apps and devices are and uh, screens are all competing for our attention and our brain space. And 
when all of that attention, when our minds are preoccupied with things all of the time, then we really don't have time to reflect, um, to 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 think about our lives, our souls, um, yeah. where sin might be. We don't have time to think about big questions. Um, you know, why are we here? What are we here for? Yeah, you talk about the the opening of the first chapter. You talk about avoiding yourself and how yeah. good you are at avoiding yourself, and how technology assists in that and intentionally yeah. wants you to distract you from things. And uh, you talked. I, I was really challenged just by the very beginning of the book, talking about um, how uncomfortable we have become with just being with our own thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It and it's interesting because you can, you know, there are all these physiological things that are going on too. As you get addicted to devices, that you know, you get this dopamine as you pick up your phone. And 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 for those of you who are addicted to your phones, like just holding it in your hand, you feel it's like a a blanket, yeah. right? Like we're all Linus. I just need this in my <laughs> hand, and then I can feel okay. So what can happen is during the day, something uncomfortable will happen. Your anxiety will spike. And instead of reflecting, maybe repenting, maybe praying, whatever it might be, um, you can turn to a device. And, and, and you can always justify, um, you know, because there's always something more important or interesting going on that you can say, well, I, I got to see what's going on in the news or, you know, I got to check this text message. Yeah. And then you've kept it at bay. Yeah. So similar question about then secularism, which is kind of yeah. one of the other foundational issues in the book. Can you define for us real briefly, when you say secularism, what do you mean and where do you pull that from? And then how, what is the challenge of secularism? So I use the definition from a Canadian philosopher, Catholic philosopher, Charles Taylor. Um, he, by secularism, he does not mean atheism. Right. And he does not mean what was um, thought of in the 1970s and 50s and uh, 60s as uh, this this idea that eventually by the 1990s or so, f- most people in the developed world would not have any faith. That was the expectation. Um, so it's not that. In, instead, he argues that you know, secularism is the state uh, in which um, belief in God is an option, mm-hmm. but uh, it's increasingly the harder option to believe. And you are hyper aware that there are other beliefs available to you, and they're all contested. Yeah. Um, so, what this does for us <clears throat> as uh, people who are speaking into the culture, and uh, even for other Christians, uh, as, as we're ministering to other Christians, we have to remember that uh, there there will be a temptation to think of Christianity not as this transcendent truth, a, as this reality, but as um, an option, a one among many. Right. And so, I mean— You for, call it a, a another co- a consumer preference yeah. in the book several Absolutely. times. Yeah. yeah. Like it's just one of many options— and that's one of the struggles with secularism is we – and we almost perpetuate that as a church, right, is your argument yeah. that we, we present it as just another option. Yeah. And so we say, hey, we're going to make your life better. Yeah. And that's kind of the same exact sales pitch that um, laundry detergent right. you know, yeah. is, right? Like Any product. What I love, what I thought was maybe even unique, <clears throat> there's a lot of – there's been a lot of writing recently, uh, even sort of reflecting upon Charles Taylor about this idea of secularism, you know, being that Christianity is one amongst many anchoring mm-hmm. beliefs. It's one amongst many. It's something you can pick out. There's been a lot of talk about technology 
Uh, You know, even in the secular world, like how social media, all these kind of things, you know, our age, our kids today are more anxious and depressed and and disconnected than they've ever been. What I loved was the way that these two things were sort of placed next to each other. Mm -hmm. And you can sort of start to see the way ways that they are connected. And so I I would love to hear from you. uh, Like, well, I'll give you one example that I'm thinking of as you're thinking about this idea of distraction. As you're thinking about the idea that Christianity is just one amongst many options, there's a sense in which technology helps you be more comfortable with that reality in your own life, but also sort of in in the world. So here's what I mean by that. I love in the beginning when you're talking about like uh, this idea of like, yeah, you know, like I told my friend I went to church or something like that, or I like said the name Jesus and that that means I evangelized them, right? right like right. I shared the gospel. You walk away yeah. feeling you like, feel oh, like, I get yeah, it. that's great. Yeah. And there is, and then I'm and then I'm sort of threading this idea of technology with that and thinking. Man, you know why that why that's so easy? You know why it's so easy to have Christianity be sort of not really the the backdrop of all your reality. Christianity is just it's you can move fluidly between your Christian self and your, you know, hipster self and your or whatever and your business self and your political self. The reason you can do that is partially because of what technology offers the ability to never think about anything, you know, to never truly reflect. So you don't actually spend a whole lot of time thinking about your friend, thinking about the state of their soul, thinking about how you could, um, yeah, how your Christianity is supposed to play in and define that relationship. Why? Because, oh, I got to check out Instagram. And what's really cool on Instagram is that thing that's out there or this connection I have or my LinkedIn account or what you could, you could tease it out a million different ways. And I just thought that is such a unique vision of what's happening. And it struck me as incredibly compelling. Yeah. So undergirding a lot of this book, um, aside from these two forces is the idea of expressive individualism, which Taylor also talks about. And that, that gets to what you were talking about with, um, this scenario where you meet with someone and you feel like you're evangelizing, you believe you're evangelizing, right? You're sitting down with a friend who does not go to church and, and, uh, you, you know, you're thinking back to all the evangelism training you've received and all the tips and you're thinking, okay, here's what I got to say. And you're being really cool about it. And you're asking these probing questions and, you know, he or she asks you about the resurrection or whatever. And you've got these answers and you're dropping them and you're feeling, okay. And so you walk away and you're like, you know, just think about it. You know, you know, here's when the service is, I'll, you know, I'll see it. And you walk away and you feel like, okay, I've, I've done this thing. Um, And what I fear is that when that, kind of exchange happens. We believe that we're having this sincere, um, uh, you know, moment sharing w- what we think of as, as, as transcendent truth. But for the other person, they, th- they see it as you expressing your identity. That's it. Primarily. Right. Um, because that's what we do all the time. And this gets back to that technology thing, right? Yeah. So, uh, when we're on social media, one of the things we're doing is we're constantly signaling to other people, this is who I am and this is how I am unique in the world and therefore this is why I matter. Um, and so when you're used to that, when that, when you see people expressing their identity to try to make a mark in the world and stand out all day long and then somebody comes along and says, well, you know, Christianity is going to make your life better. Yeah. And you think, well, yeah, that's great for Alan. I'm really glad that that, that right. faith is working out for him. Um, and, you know, I have uh, CrossFit. And so that's my thing. Right. Yeah, maybe my biggest 
pet peeve actually is this idea. Oh, let's hear this. It's the, okay, okay. It's <laughs> big, the biggest pet peeve. Well, it's not just a pet peeve. It's actually a logical fallacy. I think that's why I'm so frustrated by it. But I it? do remember taking philosophy classes and, and uh, this idea of true for you. Mm-hmm. It's another piece of expressive individualism. In other words, I can come to you and say something like, hey, Jesus died on the cross for my sins and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, um, blah, blah, blah. That's great. But you know what yeah. I'm saying? You can sort of present the gospel. And your friend can sit across from you and say, that's true for you. Yeah. You know what I mean? For me, it's CrossFit. What's true for me is that CrossFit provides all the things I need to be happy. And what's true for you is that Christianity provides that. And it's like um, things aren't true for a person. Things are either true or not true. And this is one of the questions that I had as I was going through, and I think what what the book tries to do such a good job of is how do we actually live in such a way that Christianity isn't just true for me? It's not one amongst many anymore. How do I live in such a way that I I am living as if I'm living in concordance with reality? Maybe that's the way I would say it, which is that, that the gospel is true. Yeah. Not true for me. It's true. Yeah. And then also, how do I present in such a way that the gospel is not just true for you, um, but that the gospel... And when I say presentation, maybe that's the wrong word. Maybe it is just living in such a way that others would see that I'm not... It's not just true for me, but this is the transcendent reality of the world. And I think this goes to this question of how do you be a disruptive witness? So yeah. I guess that would be my next question. How do, how do we overcome the barriers that we've been talking about? How do we define this idea mm-hmm. of this being a disruptive witness? So before I answer that, Absolutely. I just want to... Um, qualify something a little bit of what you said you know so this idea of you know it's true for you so i don't want people to get the idea that you know if i sat down with that friend i don't think he would actually say that right you right? wouldn't you he would not wouldn't. express that right but and that's the danger is that's right. so i remember you know growing up in in the church being very homeschooled i was warned about relativism yeah. right? right cultural relativism yeah. and and postmodernism yeah, and all yeah. these sort of you know these um uh, scary things and but but in the real world very few people are going to walk around saying like well you know truth is just relative actually and so what's true for you is true for you and it's true for me actually we 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 tend to hold to our beliefs fairly strongly but under secularism we also know in the back of our minds that everything's contested and we know that when somebody comes to us with something that seems persuasive there is so much information out there that uh, we can assume that somebody has debunked it Right. So if I come to you and I say, well, you know, um, this uh, herbal remedy is going to fix, you know, whatever your problem is. And and I swear by it. uh, You don't even have to look up how I'm wrong on the Internet. You can just think, you know what? He's probably wrong. And there's probably a study. And so we can just kind of. So if. If if I come, and if I come to you and I say, hey, Christianity is the truth, and you need to submit your life to Christ, that's a huge thing, right? A huge cost, your entire life. Um, it's easy because that's not something you want to accept. It's easy to just sort of schluff that off and say, well, look, there's so many smart people in the world. They've written so many things. Um, I don't really need to think about this, right? Mm. And so. Part of the danger I'm trying to identify is that we're not consciously coming up and saying um, truth is, you know, for you and truth for me. But that's our implicit belief. That's right. That's what's scary. And so it's the default setting. It's the background. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So that raises the question. So what do we do about it? Um, And this is the hardest part of the book to write because it's easy to um, describe a problem. It's hard to offer a solution. Mm -hmm. And the book, I point out that 
um, some of these forces are just too big, right? So um, outside of a cataclysmic event ending technology, right. um, technology it's going to be with us. It's going to be <laughs> yeah. with us, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, and a lot of people have been asking me with this book, okay, well, what can we do to, to ta- change our technology habits? You know, should, we get rid- should I get rid of my phone or whatever? And I, I've been trying to remind people that, you know, that can be helpful for, for your personal life. But the problem is going to remain that our neighbors overwhelmingly are still going to be on their phones, that are still going to have this problem where when we share our, our faith with them, if they're uncomfortable with that, they can easily just distract themselves and never really think about it again. Or if they do think about it, they think about it in terms of a debate or a game that they had, right. just like an online you know, flame war or something. So, um, so that raises the question, so what do we, what do, we do? Uh, I lay out three chapters, and I try to break it down to three ways we can do this. One is you know, sort of personal habits, because there are certain things that we can do um, that help us. Uh, the other is church practices, and the third is um, cultural disruptive practices. Um, <clears throat> I think the, the cultural practices are the ones I'd, 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 I'd mentioned. Um, a lot of good um, art, and I don't mean, you know, Picasso art, but it could be that, but, uh, you know, television shows, movies, music, films, whatever. Um, what, what they can do is they can cause us to sympathize with um, deep truths about the world, um, the beauty of the world, and also the horror and um, uh, the suffering in the world. Things that we uh, like to push away. And if we can um, participate in those cultural works in community, so having a friend over to watch a film and then talk about it, um, and lean into the beauty and lean into that tragedy and sort of explore where that goes. Because in, in those moments where we experience ecstasy, when we experience uh, joy and when we experience suffering, uh, it, it, it sort of shatters this, this, this buffer we have. Um, it makes us stop. So for, uh, let me give you an example. Uh, one of the most startling moments in my life. I was in a car accident when I was like 11 and it felt like the entire world stopped mm. and everything felt more real than it's ever felt before. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing, you know, tragedy, suffering, um, but also beauty, but also uh, slows life down and it sort of punctures our, um, our minds, our, 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 the, the space that we're filling up in our minds. And I think we need to use that as opportunities to talk about, okay, how do we make sense of that suffering? And how do we make sense of that beauty? Um, that seems to me like one of many ways to to offer a disruptive witness in the world. Would you say that that is part of what you're trying to capture when you talk about it from sort of a personal standpoint and personal habits? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So we have a particular challenge that people in the past did not have, and that is that it's very hard for us to um, to live aware that we live that that, that that this is a transcendent universe that 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 God exists, right. and that there are spiritual things um, because we are surrounded by um, uh, institutions, systems, technology that seems to suggest that we can explain everything in the universe, and that this material world is all that we have. So, uh, food is the best example. So, we in in the past, if you were uh, everyone 
knew where their food came from because most people would be farmers, like 95% of the people in the, in the human population were farmers. So you knew that you had to depend on God for your life. Right. And that that helped you be aware that you were not alone in the universe, that, that there is something more. But for us, it's so, I mean, you can just go your entire day and just push that aside. And so one of the personal habits I think we need to do is just an awareness of the natural world, of the beauty of the world. And when we recognize things that are beautiful, uh, we need to to thank God for that. Yeah. It's like a, a, a habit that reminds us that we're not just, yeah, we're not living in a purely material world. Playing devil's advocate a little bit. There's a sense in which the critique is so compelling. Uh, when you read... You know, and again, you can read a wide variety of of Christians who are trying to deal with the issue of our differentiated, distracted age. Um, mm-hmm. The idea that this type of secularism that Charles Taylor is talking about is a reality that we're living in, and we've adopted it into our own lives, right? We've adopted it into our churches in such a way, or in a certain way. And there's a sense in which then the prescription can almost fall flat. And so one of the critiques that I've heard a couple times as I'm, you know, I'm talking about in my daily life as I'm mm-hmm. talking uh, with people is it sounds like what you're telling me is you've got this issue of secularism that's developed over the last hundreds of years. It's giant. Yeah. You've got an issue of technology that you know, maybe is more near in terms of history and it seems to be happening very quickly and rapidly, but it's a it's a it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's this problem, and sometimes it sounds like what you're telling me, right, is, oh, we just need to be like more solemn and liturgical, you know. Oh, we just need to go back to our. Um, it seems like you're saying there's these giant issues, and what you need to do is practice the spiritual disciplines. And it's like what I will hear people say is like that's worked out really well for the Anglicans. No offense to my Anglican brothers and sisters out there, <laughs> but I what you just said is. Is I think the answer to that. That's what you're. What you're not saying is, yeah. If you do intinction instead of passing a communion plate, that right. means the world's gonna. You know, right. God will be transcended to you. That's right. not what you're saying. And I think this is such an important point. What you just said about the habits being a thing that actually renews a way of living, mm-hmm. praying, mm-hmm. isn't just about uh, saying this incantation so you feel better about yourself, which is a way a lot of people pray. Mm-hmm. It's also, though, really importantly, n- not about how you feel. It's not yeah. supposed to be about making you feel better. Going back right. to some of the things we said at first, when you pray to understand that what you are doing is acknowledging in that very act that there is a God and that God is personal because he wants to hear from you, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it gets you off the, to use Christianese, it sort of gets you off the throne of your own life. It makes you realize you are a dependent creature. You know, the way that that all starts to cascade in your whole life, when right. you make that a practice, it actually renews the way of living. The reason that you tithe your money, if I want to put it that way, it's not because like you're buying God off. It's, it's a reminder that I don't own anything. Yeah. yeah. Now I realize I can use my money in such a way that okay, I don't own it, which means I'm simply a steward, which means God's calling me to live a way that's generous. Oh, wait, now I know that I can live generously. Am I yeah. am I capturing something as we're talking yeah. about this? Yeah, so it's, you know, so Paul talks about praying continuously, right? Yes. Which is this overwhelming thing, like, oh, yeah. I should be praying continuously. But if you think about prayer just in the way you described, which part of what prayer does is reminds you that you are not, just in your own head. You're not a brain in a vat, that there's actually a God out there, and you are actually personally communicating with him, yeah. right? So um, 
I think that's the kind of thing that we need to be doing regularly yeah. as as a habit. And then there are all these, you know, including those spiritual disciplines and including, you know, certain liturgical practices that remind us that's right. that God is sacred, that, you know, the word is sacred, that the sacraments are sacred. Um, all those things work together to help us. Now, are we going to get to a place or most people are going to get to a place where, you know, secularism is not a, a problem? Like, I don't see that. That's that's probably not I – don't, I don't know how that could happen. Yeah. But we have to do something. Yeah. And this seems like the most um, practical thing to do. Yeah. That's good. So for the pastor or the minister who does get to lead a church, yeah. what wisdom would you give them, not just uh, individually but institutionally? How do you see the institutions needing to wake up to the realities of individualism, secularism, and technology and then address them? Uh, you do a lot to talk about our modes of worship. You just brought yeah. up the sacraments. You brought up a little bit of liturgy. But why are those things that communicate uh, transcendency? You you talked uh, – one of the things you mentioned in the book that I thought was really good was talking about how we've created uh, – in, in the co-opting of cultural ideas, it's almost like we've made church where you expect to come and hear a good lecture that will broadly apply to my life. And that's what we've made church as opposed to what you would say. And here you would argue, no, it should be more than that if we really want to communicate that God is real and there's a transcendent life. Can you talk us through what are those yeah. institutional strategies? Yeah, so I think this is so important that when people walk into church, um, all right, so, so many churches want to create a space where if an unbeliever comes into the church, they feel very comfortable. Yeah. Um, and they definitely should feel comfortable with the people, right? So the people should be warm and welcoming, but the service itself should be weird to them. Not intentionally, like you shouldn't go out of your way to make, you know, I'm not telling everyone to be a Jesus freak for its own sake, right? Um, yeah. That didn't work. Um, but what we need to do, though, is uh, we need to be practicing things that reference, that remind us of um, God's transcendence, what he did on the cross for us, that we are not our own, that we actually have obligations to our neighbor. Um all these things which really are foreign to our, to our culture. And we can do that through things like, um, you know, communal singing. Like when you can actually hear somebody's voice, you know, your neighbor standing next to you in the pew over the sound of the instruments and, and, and you know, the people singing, that's a way of, uh, of reminding you this faith, faith is not just me. Yeah. Right. So Charles Taylor talks about this this danger of what he calls excarnation, where we in, instead of being embodied, we actually just push ourselves into our heads. And this this reminds me so much of my experience growing up in the church. I felt like when I went to church, it was just me in my head and God. Mm -hmm. Right. And there were other people around me, but we were alone together. Yeah. And so I would go and I would pray and I would sing and I would listen to the lecture and I would go and I would think about how to apply it in my life. And we just happened to be together. Yeah. And that's not the way church is supposed to be. Yeah. Can you talk about – you talk about how Christmas is kind of a lingering example of yeah. how this is the way it should feel, that we communally all do something different that sets something apart. Yeah. So I had this experience. I went to a church where uh, the norm was the music was much louder than the voices of the congregation singing. Mm -hmm. And then we went to a Christmas Eve service and we were singing carols or hymns. And um, I don't know why, just the, the engineer, the sound engineer, it was just quieter, but everyone was singing so loud. And I realized, I was just overwhelmed with this fact that we all shared this hope in Christ. We all shared this, this belief in his historic birth and what that meant for our lives. 
And um, I felt part of something bigger across time and across the, the world. Um, and I felt what Paul says. I mean, we're supposed to encourage each other. And I felt encouraged. And I don't think I had ever felt that before during a worship service. Um, so those are these powerful moments that that church services can offer um, I, I think when people walk into a church, they should know that this is a sacred space. Yeah. That this is that there is something solemn here. That there is something sacred, and um, because there aren't a lot of sacred spaces, everything's sort of been commodified and um, cleaned up into uh, to make it acceptable and accessible to a lot of people. And so in the, in the book, I talk about a lot of church services being like TED Talks with a small concert, right. right? And so it's like, how can you improve your life? And what I fear about, one of the things I fear about that is somebody comes into a church and for a couple of weeks they go and they're like, wow, this is, in, this is improving my marriage or my relationship with my kids or I feel, uh, you know, my, my, my confidence is up. That's great. And then, you know, one sermon, you know, the pastor talks about a particular sin that's unpopular in culture, right? And they're like, well, this makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't, this isn't improving my life. I feel bad now. So why go back, right? So if, yeah. if if that's what church is offering us is how to improve your life, that's it. Then yeah. and it's shallow. Then yeah, you're just going to cut and leave. I appreciated um, so much of your book, and there's so much more we could talk about. But one of the main ideas, uh, besides what you said, that the prescriptive, dis- the descriptive, really, idea of individualism and secularism. And then also uh, technology was so helpful at the beginning to lay this foundation for then talking about how do we miss out on the transcendency of God and both corporately and individually. I think it is a, it's a great book for anybody, particularly a church leader to read, but really anybody who uh, exists, in, at least in the American uh, first world culture that'll be familiar with these concepts or maybe somebody who's read Secular Age or some of um, – uh, some of the the recent kind of liturgical reinvigoration that's happening in evangelicalism. I think this comes right alongside that. It's a really, really compelling uh, companion piece to our current culture. So, Alan, thank you so much for coming and being here with us today. I was really encouraged by your thoughts both today and in the book, and I think it'll it'll bless our church. Thank you. If there's anything you heard on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website at tvcresources.net. On our next episode, we're going to have Karen Swallow Pryor, a professor of English from Liberty University. We'll be talking about reading and reading well. We'll see you next time. God bless and thanks for listening.